in a world where they had thought to have vanished. Where they were lost for millennia, they have returned. Ladies and gentlemen, the Amazons. I'm making that up. That was just my fun. <laughs> Oh my god oh my god in a world i love it i love it okay i'm gonna have to put our intro in front of us <laughs> uh, no i i think that's plenty of intro <laughs> oh boy welcome to the 34 Cersei salon make matriarchy great again and this is gonna be fun so i am sean morlanukum and i am here with john sam alden and we have our prize special guest, Vicky Noble. <laughs> All right. So let's get right into it. This is an Amazon show, so this will be a lot of fun. And so, Vicky, what is the big idea you want everyone to take away from on this podcast today? Basically, female leadership. And I want people to understand the long continuity of female leadership, even after the old European civilization was destroyed. Fantastic. Nice. Let's get right into what old Europe is. And I'm, I'm sorry, do just jump in as the Amazon? Yeah, I just, want to say that, <laughs> I just want to say that when we originally started these podcasts, this is sort of where we, we wanted to start, but realized, especially after talking to Vicky, that we needed to sort of back up and and go through what caught what sort of brought the Amazons into being and what was the culture that they were defending and that they sprung from. So uh, we have done those episodes, which have been incredibly fascinating. And for me, I have, you know, I knew none of that. And so I have learned all this great information. Um, so now we're sort of starting to talk about the Amazon specifically, um, really for the first time. We've sort of glanced, you know, glance, bl glancingly talked about them, but now we're going to get into the nitty gritty. And uh, Sean and I could not be more excited. We're squirming in our seats. <laughs> That's <Yes>. wonderful. <laughs> I'm, I'm really eager to talk about the Amazons. Uh, I do want to review just a little bit of where they come from. And also uh, people... To just to jump in too, Vicki, can I just tell the folks what episodes you've been on so that they could go back? Let's refer to them as it's as it comes up, because I think then they'll know what uh, the subject matter. It'll be in context. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, context, yeah. Uh, go for it. I, I works for me. So oh, good. As you were saying, as you were saying. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that uh, the listeners should know if they haven't read my book, The Double Goddess, um, is that the way that I'm looking at Amazons uh, starts back in prehistory rather than in the classical period. So I really want to lay the groundwork for that. I want it to make sense. Mm -hmm. And okay. by the time we get to the classical period and the Amazons that Herodotus was writing about, uh, like 500 BCE, uh, it'll really make sense what a long continuity of female leadership we're talking about. So the Amazons you see as being the heirs to this much earlier history of women as women leaders. Absolutely. 
Okay. Well said. So, you know, if we remember when we talked about the old European goddess civilizations of the Neolithic, we already were remembering that they came from earlier times, from the Paleolithic when there wasn't any agriculture, and then uh, from the transition period into the agriculture and farming that they're so well known for. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I thought I would just uh, really emphasize how much of that had to do with women, because that's what is completely erased from normal prehistory classes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Where is old Europe, Vicki? Where, where specifically was that? Ah, it's really all the way from, uh, from the Mediterranean, from the Aegean Sea, all the way to the, to, uh, through Bulgaria to the Black Sea. Wow. Okay. So an area that is mostly Eastern, maybe a little bit of Central Europe, down into the Mediterranean, down into the Black Sea. Yeah. Starting okay. with Greece and, and uh, moving upward. You know, we talked about the migration of people from Greece up into around the Danube River to a place called Lipinski Vir, the most well-known site. And then finally, the spread. Um, but I'll talk more about that. I, I wanted to make a quote from, uh, you know, I've talked about Harold Harmon and Joan Marler and what good work they've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Journal of Archaeomythology is up online and just wonderful, has so many good essays and articles from over the years. And the way they talk about the, the women's involvement in the transition to agriculture is very beautiful. Um, they say that it required the cooperation and coordination of entire communities to prepare the land for planting, to cultivate, to tend, to water, and protect the growing plants from predators, and then to harvest and process the results. You know, all of this comes out of the woman as gatherer and then uh, adapts itself to, to the cultivation of plants and the domestication of animals. And uh, they say the stress that women's gathering activities, they stress that the gathering activities led to profound knowledge and sensitivity to the dynamic patterns and changing conditions of each complex ecosystem and so on. In other words, the kind of sensitivity that uh, we, we attribute these days to permaculture but that in the ancient times happened naturally uh, from living in a place and from the women being so close to the, uh, to the plants and the use of plants. And um, I, I might also point out uh, that there have been studies done on um, the uh, amount of calories that were gained from hunting versus gathering, and that the vast majority of calories actually came from the gathering, not the hunting. Uh-huh. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I read that it was something like 80%. I guess it, they don't know what it was. They know that in hunter-gatherer cultures today, the gathering that the women do is really makes up the great portion of the diet. Right. Yes. So we, we know from our earlier talks about the old European civilization that they produced an incredible outpouring of sculptures and portable altars and ceremonial items indicating an enduring 
dedication to their rituals, communal rituals plugged into the calendar of the seasons and cycles of life. And, uh, and then from the, from the podcast we did on the script that belonged to the old European civilization, mm-hmm. the Danube script, we also saw that they had innovation. They had this long continuity, thousands of years of farming sustainably, and incredible artwork, and it evolved into uh, more and more refined uh, expression of art. And then finally, they developed a whole systematic use of linear signs, hundreds of them, Mm -hmm. that they used within this ritual context. Um, And that's what we call the Danube script. So we those those are the podcasts I would recommend if people are interested in going further into that study. Absolutely. So that would be one is called uh, Old Europe. Uh, let me get matriarchy, matriarchy of Old Europe, Europe specifically Europe. the section on uh, agriculture and culture, mm-hmm. and then um, the sacred script of sacred matriarchy. script of the matriarchy. Yeah, symbols of the script and matriarchal culture. And, um, yeah, we're probably about to start referencing uh, Crete, Minoan women, and the origin of the Amazons. So yeah, It wouldn't hurt to go back there. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't hurt to go back there and listen to that one, too. Exactly. So just to sum up the achievements of old Europe, uh, Harmon and Marler say, by the mid-sixth millennium BCE, so this is 8,000 years ago, okay? Yeah. This is- <clears throat> the old Europeans had established successful farming practices, networks of long-distance trade, refined, highly innovative ceramics, and long-lived, mature, egalitarian societies. And I would add they were peaceful. Yes. They learned to build houses with more than one story. They developed gold and copper metallurgy and used hundreds of visual signs and symbols expressing conventional meanings. And these are female-centric civilizations. This is a female-centric civilization. Just yeah, to make sure that's what we gather from all the different uh, outputs that I'm talking about now, as well as the, the more than 100,000 female figurines. When you say female-centric, can you just kind of explain a little bit about more how that works? As we're talking egalitarian, we're not talking the flip of patriarchy. Ooh, ooh, can, I, can I answer yeah. that? Can I answer yeah. that from how what I've learned? As a student of Vicky Noble, I would say that that means, look at me being so proud of myself, <laughs> um, that they are matrilinear, that they are matrilocal, that they have um, an egalitarian economy that is that is uh, based in gift giving to maintain um, egalitarianism, and that they worship a feminine divine. Go, Don! Yes, <laughs> score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're just completely not top down. Right. You know, it's a, a horizontal or a group kind of mentality. Um, they're working together. They're working cooperatively. Uh, it's it's we have to stretch our minds to 
to imagine what that would feel like because yeah. we're so far from it these days. It's it's interesting. One of the things that I've been researching is um, is sort of pockets that feel like matriarchy today. Uh-huh. And um, when I was living in Chicago, I was part of uh, two all-female theater companies, one that I uh, joined that was already in place, and then one that I consequently, that I subsequently founded. And I always tried to explain to people like how, how different it felt uh-huh. to be in a, a theater company where there were only women in the room. Yeah. And now I have the tools to explain why it felt so different. And one of the major things was the matriarchal concept of consensus building. That uh, exactly. Yeah. Resolution. That we always we made decisions by consensus. Uh-huh. And, you know, it meant that it took longer to to come to a decision. But when we did come to a decision, everyone had, because they'd been part of this process, everyone was invested in the decision that we came to and felt that a part of them was was in that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is heard. Uh, You can stand out. I mean, I'm thinking now of living matriarchal cultures where we can talk to people about how they actually do this process. Mm -hmm. And there are, uh, you know, there are protocols where if a person really disagrees, they can block. It Mm -hmm. rarely happens. Um, And then there are options for people to just uh, stand out, Mm -hmm. be neutral, you know, abstain. And, yeah. And and mostly it's agreeable and cooperative and mostly they arrive at unanimous decisions. Yeah. So there are these little, you know, these little nuggets of matriarchy that still exist in in the world today. And when you find them, there is this almost startling feeling of like, this is different. It's sort of like the way that right now uh, the studies have been coming out showing that women leaders in different countries around the world are the ones who have been successful with handling COVID. Yes. They've proven it. Yeah. It's amazing. And, and I don't even believe in the idea of one female leader making that much difference. I think it probably takes more than that. But apparently these women are free to operate from their own uh, natures and from their own decision making and so on. Um, so they're not just uh, they're not just working in a patriarchal form. They're actually right. changing the form. Right. And that's so, very exciting. So that's the that's the structure. That's the framework we're working in now from which we, eventually we see the Amazons come forth. Yeah. This, yes. And that's, what I, really, that's what I feel excited about is the way the Amazons did come forth and what kind of drove them to it, uh, which is a good segue into just reminding people we did one of our podcasts, the old Europe one, we ended with, uh, you know, the terrible uh, erasure of that beautiful culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it started, I think, uh, in the town of Varna on the 
western coast of the Black Sea in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a really important place. The archaeologists are crazy about it because there was so much gold, more gold than they've ever found anywhere in the world. Gold objects, you know, that had been. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think that was probably part of the attraction of the uh, of the invasions that happened, because in in uh, north of the Black Sea and uh, on the steppes, uh, the culture was different that was forming. And uh, we believe it's the Proto-Indo-European culture that was forming at that time. This would be in about the middle of the fifth millennium. So, and for and for the listener, who were the Indo-Europeans? What was well? That's that's that? they're the ones who developed uh, a culture of male dominance and uh, and 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 finally war. And we really don't know why that happened. I mean, that's a great research question for somebody to to really investigate. But you would have to go there, I think, and look at the uh, museum and archaeological material. But it's no one has figured it out so far. My friend Miriam Robbins Dexter, who's very smart about these things, has has suggested the idea that the young males might have been um, exiled from the earlier cultures for uh, for some kind of uh, mistake that they made or whatever crime we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if that was so, that maybe they gathered together, banded together, because the reason people think something like that is because the the invasions into old Europe that started in about the middle of that fifth millennium, and and especially wiped out uh, Varna and nearby places, um, they were male. They the archaeological remains show that they were males, incoming males, and really different, you know, in the culture. They were buried in kurgans, uh, one mound for one man. And uh, anyway, I, I, we've talked and about didn't they And didn't they also, um, not only did they raid goods, but they often also raided women. They kidnapped women. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And, you know, uh, everybody used to deny this in the establishment, but it, it is fairly undeniable now because of recent DNA material that has come through the different studies. And uh, it's clear that the first wave of invaders came in. There weren't too many of them, and it doesn't show in the DNA record in a, in a big way. But the archaeological record shows that they made forays into that area and they brought back stuff that is as it's dug up from their burials all the way back in the steps. Um, The archeologists recognize it as having come from the Balkans. It's all the beautiful things that they made in old Europe that we've been talking about. And those things are found in those, uh, in those early graves. And, uh, and then they know finally from the DNA material that uh, they also brought back women. And so, so that first wave didn't, it didn't disrupt all of Europe, if that makes sense. It just made a mark. Um, And it began what the archaeologists like to call 
rating and trading. You know, can I just jump in for a second, Vicky, to tell the listener one of the ways that we know this information is correct because people will sometimes question it, is what they have found both in the archaeological record and in the genetic record, yeah. the archaeogenetics, is that there is a gender imbalance in the genetic record eventually after these invasions occur. The gender imbalance that still exists within the European population showing that a lot of the Y DNA, the male DNA, is descends from these invaders, this invasion population. Maybe not the first wave. As not the yes, but certainly the later ones. Yes, the first after. wave is in the mid fifth millennium, and uh, and that's definitely you know that definitely had an impact, but it was pretty local, I would say. And then um, and then they there were displaced refugees. We know that now partly from that. Uh, um, gosh, National Geographic, no, Archaeology Magazine article that we talked about in one of our podcasts where they were mm-hmm. describing uh, huge uh, megacities that formed in, in the fourth millennium, in the beginning of the fourth millennium, um, at the, as these uh, refugees were leaving the Bulgarian part of the old European culture and going more toward Moldova and uh, finally the Ukraine. And they were joining the Kukuteni Tripolia culture that it had very similar values and was part of the larger uh, old European scene. Um, and so that all happened in the fourth millennium. By the end of the fourth millennium, even those megacities are destroyed or they say they're abandoned. <laughs> so that, that's when that's when we start seeing the genetic imprint again for the listener. So there's these different waves. There's old Europe, and then there are these succeeding waves over millennia of these basically mostly male Indo-European invaders coming in from the steppes. And then you see in the archaeological record, you see uh, traumatic uh, evidence of, of trauma, of physical trauma on the skulls and bodies of males in these old Europe matriarchies. And you also see in the genetic record, the lineage changing from being the old European male DNA to the Indo-European step warrior DNA, whereas the female DNA is pretty much unchanged. They don't bring in women with a DNA print similar to the male print of the invaders. You have the male invader imprint and the female DNA, which is what they start calling what raiding and trading and all the romanticized versions they have of this, I guess, Vicky, of the way these guys are portrayed. So that's just mm-hmm. so people know there is evidence in the record. It's not something we're just sort of pulling out of thin air and creating from whole cloth. And, exactly. the, and the big evidence that you're describing is the the wave that happened around the end of the fourth and the beginning of the third millennium, when so many Indo-European males came into old Europe that they absolutely uh, erased the culture. I mean, for all practical purposes, they, they erased the material culture. Of course, we know that the script was remembered in some way. We know that the signs and symbols and motifs have come down for thousands of years and can still be found in a lot of the folk art in uh, Eastern Europe and so on. Um, that That's the group that has been named Yamnaya. 
that third wave and and they they absolutely destroyed old Europe. So I'm calling Amazons those women warriors that show up beginning in the third millennium, mm. beginning exactly at the end of their culture. And uh, it's like they they erupted into the historical record in the Bronze Age. Um, and I said in my Double Goddess book, you know, that I, I see a story here. I, I think they just kept uh, running, that the displacements continued to happen, and especially all through the third millennium, um, in in both directions, they went east, they went west, and mm-hmm. so the the migrations, very far flung migrations, have been my fascination since Karen Vogel and I made the mother piece cards forty years ago. So, how does a matriarchal society withstand that well, conflict? They didn't. Well, they didn't. I mean, that's right. they didn't. And the fact that there are remnants of matriarchy all over the world still today is just, uh, you know, it's an incredible tribute to the resilience of people trying to save what they love, because it's it's a miracle at this point. Globe, globalism has sort of finished off the process. You know, there's right. there's a wonderful book that I I don't know if I can think of the name of it. Unfortunately, maybe we can put it up later. Um, it's it's written about. Uh, refugees, and it's written about uh, people who are displaced and so on, which is much of my own scholarly uh, work. And this guy's talking about contemporary cultures in Asia, South Asia. And and he's talking about people who do not want to be part of the state. You know, they don't want to be brought into the state. It's like mm. Native Americans. Um, in fact, uh, there's, there's another wonderful book by... Uh, Jerry Mander from the 80s called uh, the, hmm, oh dear, the something <laughs> of the sacred. I'll, I'll look this one up too, but look up Jerry Mander. And uh, his book was wonderful. You know, he interviewed uh, Native people and, and understood that they don't want to be part of our stupid idea of progress. They are trying to hold on to what they love. They're trying to hold on to this amazing connection with Mother Earth and with the invisible beings that we have uh, left behind in, in Western culture. Yeah, there's a wonderful author, um, Ed Maga, M-C-G-A-A. Uh, his, uh, his native name is Eagle Man. And um, he wrote a series of books in the 90s, I want to say, um, <laughs> that, uh, that he's Oglala Sioux by uh by uh birth and um he wrote books talking about the seven sacred ceremonies of the Sioux and he ran sweat lodges for non-native peoples and his idea was because a lot of Indian culture is very insular and they don't allow outsiders and his um his point of view was if we think these this way of life is so so important this ceremony that we do is so important then why are we not teaching it to as many people as we can to try to, you know, encourage the growth of these ways of thinking. So he would, um, he sort of nicknamed the non-native peoples that followed him, his rainbow tribe. Uh And, um, and, you know, he would teach 
the ceremonies and he would lead ceremony for non-native peoples as a way to try to sort of spread the gospel of this earth-centered way of living. Well, that's very generous considering what happened to native people when Indeed. white people died on this continent. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Right. I want to, on, on that, in that sense, I want to circle back a little bit to the war uh, aspect of this, because what I'm hearing about markets and what I'm hearing about society is impacted, obviously, directly and at its root by this shift and the ability for a outside culture to come into a matriarchy and impose something upon it or destroy it or scatter it. So in that sense, where do you, where has it been found in matriarchal studies, warfare's beginning in a sense? Do we have a sense of when these kinds of civilizations began to spread across the world, obviously it would have been in a lot of different locations. Yes, I'd like to talk a little bit about that even before, because what you're really naming now, I think, is the long development of agriculture and the beginning of the Neolithic civilizations, because right. that's when people really settled down and started living in large numbers together. In, in places that sometimes we've heard of, uh, you know, uh, we talked a little uh, last time about a place called Ein Ghazal in Jordan, very early Neolithic uh, city, you might say. I mean, these are not cities in an urban sense. They're more like communal communes, you know, uh, where people gathered together and practiced uh, sustainable agriculture, what we would call permaculture maybe today. Right, and, yeah. And owned owned the all of the fruits of the uh, harvest and so on, uh, owned that in common. And the, the reason I would like to talk a little bit about agriculture is that progressives and modern uh, contemporary organic farmers and people like that don't understand very well the uh, history of agriculture. And I often hear it said for about the last 20 years, this has been in vogue, um, that, that the beginning of agriculture, you know, was somehow the beginning of the end, you know, the beginning of our demise. There's a kind of glorification of the hunter gatherer, which is really just guys who are uh, enamored of the idea of the hunter Right. Um, but there's no focus at all on the gatherer. Um, and then the move to agriculture is so clearly female-centered that uh, I, that may be part of the reason it's kind of erased in the contemporary discourse. But what really irks me is that they make agriculture bad from the beginning as if it resembled in any way our modern agribusiness. Yeah. and the harm that it causes all over the world. There's no relationship. The early agriculture was, the, in fact, the only way to understand the cultures of old Europe is to understand the sacred way in which agriculture was practiced for at least 4,000 years. And I would assume that it was more like 20,000 years because the agriculturalists, you know, they, they didn't just happen suddenly in 9,000 BCE or whatever, uh, which is sort of was the earlier story. story. They, um, they developed over time and they foraged and settled 
over a long period of time. One one author called it a process rather than an event. I like right. that pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they moved seasonally, and later they these are Natufian people that we hear about first of all in the coming into the Jordan Valley uh, along the the migration routes from Africa. And let's say maybe in 15,000 BCE and 10,000 BCE, you know, coming coming into that area with already having established a certain amount of relationship with uh, at least the harvesting of wild grains and, and foods, uh, but also some cultivation. And once they settled in Jericho and Ein Gazal in the Jordan Valley, they uh, they really established agriculture in a way that we look back on and call the beginning of agriculture. Um, and what they were do they they domesticated wheat. They they moved up uh, eventually into Turkey, into what we call Anatolia, Syria, and Turkey, and um, and that's where they established the sites that we're most familiar with uh, from. The, I suppose from the British archaeology, Mellard, and then uh, the British archaeologists who are in Turkey right now uh, studying Chateau Huyuk. Um, mm. It was a place where, but the, but Ein Gazal and Chateau Huyuk have many things in common. Uh, they had, they were already doing things in their funerary practices that were terribly interesting. You know, always there's this secondary burial practice. Um, Vicky, before we before we go there, just so for the listener, because you, I, Don, and I know about Ein Gazal and Chattahuyuk, but can you just tell them what that is a little bit more, and then? Well, they're you know, the first places. They're the first places we know of where people settled in large groups, thousands of people living in at these sites. And, and this is in Anatolia, in modern day Turkey. Uh, Ein Gazal is in the Jordan Valley in the Middle East. Well, I'm sorry, and Shad, but Shadahuik is in and Turkey, Ein-Gazal is in Jordan. Yeah, it's in Turkey. And Ein-Gazal is earlier, <clears throat> just by a little, but uh, it's <clears throat> it's where we first see uh, large uh, goddess figurines, uh, life-size. They were made of plaster. I think we might have mentioned these in an earlier segment. Um, they, they, they're obviously cult figures, you know, they're not small handheld goddesses or anything like that. And uh, they would have been dressed and uh, given hair and all that, but we just see them uh, as the kind of uh, structure, the plaster structure, and these big green malachite eyes, you know, that look there in trance. (coughs) And one of those, uh, several actually, of those uh, statues are double goddesses. And so I included them in my book, The Double Goddess. That's what got me first interested in the place. But they also had a cult of the skulls, you know, they call it a skull cult. And this was typical uh, of the Middle Eastern, early Neolithic. And then in, at Shadalhuyuk uh, and other sites in Turkey around Shadalhuyuk, they also did the same thing. They plastered skulls after the the um, the secondary part of the burial, you know, where the bones are saved. They took the skull, they plastered it, they made inlaid eyes, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're just amazing. And uh, there's some way that they, the, the archaeologists say they worshipped skulls. I don't know if that's quite right, but but they certainly venerated their ancestors. Um, I am, um, can I in, insert a little personal yeah. thought here? Um, 
I, I remember reading that and, and thinking about how they would, you know, they would, uh, the skulls, all of the flesh would, of course, either fall away or be scro- scraped away. Uh-huh. And then they would rebuild these skulls and put eyes in them. It's almost yeah. as if they were sort of trying to recapture the person whose <laughs> skull this was. And then they kept them in their in their houses, in their, you know, in their places of worship, in their communal centers. And I remember back to when my mom died. And um, I apologize if I get a little emotional here. But um, I remember when my mom died, she she died in my home. Um, I was lucky enough to care for her the last six weeks of her life. Oh, and, um, and I remember that the moment that she died was not as traumatic for me as the moment when the funeral home came and took, took away, away. Yeah. her body. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that even when she was dead, she was somehow still there for me. Uh-huh. But when they took away her body and I realized that I would never hold her hand again, I would never be able to stroke her hair again, I would never see her again. That in was a, the moment that I a, f- fell apart. Yeah. In yeah. A, where women are the religious preceptors for the funerary rituals, you would have had the task of bathing her body and anointing right. her with oils and incenses that are preservative. And uh, there's no embalming in these other cultures. You know, it's only right. something we do in the West. It is so bizarre. If we ever had the capacity to look at our own funerary rituals <laughs> with any kind of clarity we would see that it's just bizarre. We're trying as hard as we can using all of these, using cement and metal and all these things to try to keep the body from decaying. You know, the ancient people, the goddess religion and the ancient, these ancient cultures, the the entire thing, as Maria Gambudis put it into words, is is birth, death, and regeneration. It's reality it's not linear and they didn't they worshipped they worshipped the cycles of life and they participated in them and we would never have let someone come and take our mother away from the house and yeah you know do that stuff to her I mean it's 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 really it's horrifying but only if you can step outside of the normal uh experience of being an American you know Yeah. Yeah. But I feel that she was cremated. um, And I kind of feel that way about her urn. That, that, of course. Yeah. That there, that like, I will, I will go and talk to her at her her urn and, you know, and (laughs) yeah, it makes me feel this connection. A wonderful friend of mine um, told me that even though the person is gone, the relationship is not gone. Right. And I thought that was incredibly profound yeah, because I am still in relationship with my mother, even though she's dead. And yeah. so, of course, I want to talk to her, you know. So well, I totally get how having a plastered skull in your house of your ancestor would be incredibly comforting. Yes, it's on the mantle, right? Yeah, yeah. They would feel like yeah. they are they're not completely gone. There's there's part of them, literally part of them, yeah. that is still with you. Yeah. And uh I so I find that, you know, not disgusting or horrifying or or gruesome in any way. It's it's about connection. 
And one really interesting connection cross-culturally and across eons of time is that uh, in the yogini tradition in India, uh, the, the, there were yogini temples built in about uh, from the 8th to the 12th centuries in this era. And they're a little bit of a mystery, and a couple of scholars have written about them, and that's about it. But the, uh, one of the things they've told us, and, and they relate it to the teachings of Tantra and Shakta, Shakta Tantra, um, is that yoginis and skulls go together. Hmm. And yoginis love skulls. And so when I first read that, I thought I had to scratch my head, you know. Yoginis love skulls. <laughs> you know, it's so foreign, isn't it? But at this point in my research after all these decades, I just think it's fabulous. Of yeah. course, yoginis love skulls. They, they used to do the funerary practices. Yoginis are a late, late uh, archetypal uh, expression of the women and the funerary rituals that we have always performed since time immemorial. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get you off track there. Really? That's a profound aspect of it. And I'm wondering though, as we talk about those particular connections that these cultures had, you were leading towards Vicky about the idea of the, these agricultures matriarchies that were being settled at that point and then eventually of course the conflict that they have with the warrior culture that comes in yes exactly these places. so the the people who migrated the natufian people who uh, migrated and developed into the anatolian cultures and uh, they then in 7000 bce we know now from the dna records they moved uh, as a people, I mean, obviously not all of them left, but a large group of migrants left Anatolia on boats and went to Cyprus. The island of Cyprus is in between Turkey and Greece, mm-hmm. and, and they settled there. Some settled and stayed there doing agriculture, and others went to Crete. 7000 BCE is the first settlement at Canassos in Crete. Mm-hmm. Um, they went into mainland Greece and created the cultures of Achilleon, uh, uh, the culture of Achilleon, where Gimbutas first uh, dug. Uh, that was part of the Sesclo culture in Greece. And then uh, a thousand years later, it's, it's you know, a new development called the Dimini, but it's kind of all the same uh, people, ancestral people. And then those, so those two, those two cultures in Greece uh, have a lot of wonderful archaeology that is part of uh, part of the material that Gimbutas used to bring us her interpretations of how people were living in those communal settings in uh, in the mainland of Greece. And then they, she also dug a site in uh, Macedonia that was the same, uh, the old European type of uh, of culture. <coughs> Sorry, I have to get a drink. We are taxing you <laughs> sorely here. You're giving a lecture practically. My goodness, thank you. I'm probably getting too excited. <laughs> no, problem. Excitement is a good thing. Indeed, so. indeed. 
So, so much of the material that we get from Yim Buddhist comes from those cultures in Greece. Maybe I'll uh, read you a, a little paragraph that I wrote about her work in, in, the, in how she interpreted. Um, she labored to describe and document a civilization in which women were prominent in religious life, honored with symbolic items in graves, that pottery making was in women's hands, sacred script in, was inscribed on the bodies of female figurines. There were hundreds of female figurines found just at Achillean, I think 200. Wow. And the girls were important heiresses in a hereditary female line. Yabudas emphasized the non-separation between what we call mundane and sacred, as well as two interdependent contiguous aspects of one deity, is what she said, or one cyclic flow of birth, death, and regeneration. Mm -hmm. She documented that weaving and pottery making took place in temple workshops, that birthing and the baking of bread were done in the courtyards of temples, overseen by what she called the pregnant birth bird goddess. So, you know, that's where I started to just try to uh, summarize a little bit some of what she brought forth about these cultures. And then these same people, again, not all of them, obviously, some stayed, but many uh, traveled north and migrated as far as the Danube River. And so they, uh, at the Danube River, they encountered the hunter-gatherers who had lived there for some time since the Paleolithic, and uh, they, there was some intermixing of those two cultures. Not a lot, interestingly. They, they lived side by side for quite a while, I think at least a thousand years. Um, peacefully, side peacefully. by side. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, again, they shared the same matriarchal values, it's just that this was a farming people moving into the territory. And within a thousand or 1500 years, uh, one scholar I read said that the DNA of the hunter gatherers showed that they had begun to uh, probably do farming. They at least had begun to eat the food uh, of the, of the farming people. Right. Um, And so and one of the Vicky, big- can, I, can I just ask you to jump in? And in, in this sense, you were talking about agriculture and how scholars had been using that as making the hunter gatherer and glorifying just the hunting aspect of it and making it seem as if agriculture had undermined that. You were bringing up how agriculture was part of these matriarchal developments. So, could you say a little bit about what the these agricultural societies were like? how that influenced, how, if, if, or if not, it was influenced by them being matriarchal and then just then it kind of the connection between that you're saying between them and the hunter gatherers that live side by side with them. Yes. Well, the place that, uh, this is a place that we talked about once before it's called Lipinski Veer on the Danube river mm. uh, at what's called the iron gates of the Danube river. There was a, a tremendous whirlpool there and huge uh, salmon like, uh, fish and um, and it was a fishing the hunter gatherers there were primarily eating fish and so that's just one example of how uh, the farming people and the hunter gatherers were able to uh, to mix it up I mean Gimbuddha said 
there's no major dichotomy between the hunter-gatherers and incipient agriculturalists. In other words, they were hunter-gatherers as they began to settle down and become farmers. And and what the criticism that the progressives bring against agriculture has to do with all the terrible things that happened in agriculture after patriarchy. So mm. by the four, the end of the fourth millennium, you know, they were clear cutting trees, they were uh, doing big irrigation projects, you know, they were they were going against nature and the rhythms of nature to get higher yields. And they were doing mass production in every way. This is in Mesopotamia uh, and places like that. But um, as the uh, as the farmers uh, came into contact in this particular instance, the that, you know, there were no struggles because they're more or less coming from the same place. There's a kind of well, again, what Gimbutas said was there's a complex and consistent pattern of religious devotion centered around a multifaceted female deity. And she talked about the climate being very favorable toward the agriculturalists. It got warmer. Uh, the, there was more fertility. It was easier. Uh, but she says that they had uh, much increased populations. I mean, all the scholars agree about this. Some of them think it's very bad, like it was mm. the beginning of uh, population overgrowth. But but I don't think they saw it that way because it was in harmony. It was right. they were in harmony with one another and they were in harmony with nature and their agriculture was ritualized and a part of their religion. It was actually a religious undertaking. And I don't mean religious like the rules coming down from some deity on high. I mean, in the way that they perceived of themselves as part of the body of the great mother and that the great mother provided all that they needed. And, and what they had to do was simply to uh, respond and tend, you know, much more like a garden. Uh, right. And she, Gimbutas talks about there being no territorial aggression, a total absence of lethal weapons, which she said implies a peaceful coexistence between all groups and individuals. And she's talking here at, uh, about the time period of 6500 to 5500 BCE. So this is when the first old European cultures are established. And uh, they start making, uh, you know, the world's most beautiful pottery. They start making ceramics that are just so refined and elegant that yeah. there are art historians who say that nothing has ever uh, come that high again, you know, in terms of uh, highly evolved artistic expression. Wow. And figurines start in the seventh millennium in Greece and then uh, in the old European cultures, uh, lots of figurines, all female, all female. Um, there weren't uh, male, I forget now, I can't give you a, a perfect date because I didn't write it down, but I think it's uh, maybe by the fifth millennium we see an occasional male, um, but not very often. Uh, the, and the early ones were all female. They they speak of them. Notice this when you're reading astro uh, astro <laughs> sorry, um, archaeological text, you know, anthropomorphic. They're anthropomorphic females. They're anthropomorphic vases. They're anthropomorphic, uh, you know, thrones. Uh, they're, they're female. 
<laughs> right, right. They're, you know, they're not uh, generic. Right. They're, even they're, the in, even the quote unquote inanimate objects like a vase yeah, is like a, yeah like a vase with breasts. I mean, right, that, right. It has a gender. It has gender yeah. characteristics. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and Maria Kim Buddhists talked about their intense religious ceremonialism. And the religious ceremonialism was, was uh, performed or facilitated by women, priestesses. Right. And so uh, in, the, in the fifth millennium, uh, trade becomes more intensified. I, they don't say for sure. I mean, I don't, you, how do you know? But there was always trade uh, right, from right. the Aegean area to as far as Chateau Huyuk even. And the obsidian from Chateau Huyuk went everywhere. And so, you know, there's always been trade. But by the fifth millennium, it was very, very intensive. And the thing that happened in the fifth millennium is they discovered copper and they discovered gold. And they mined both of them. Copper had to be, you know, it has to be melted off of the malachite and azurite. Uh, right. And, uh, and then it drips out and then you have copper. And so they somehow discovered that process in, in, in an area, you might think of it as being Bulgaria. That's where some of the first and largest old European civilizations happened. Right. Uh, Karanovo is a name that I used last time we talked. It's uh, it's one of the more famous ones. And I noticed, uh, you know, these these uh, sites that start in Greece, like Achilleon and the and Anza in Macedonia. They're they're what archaeologists call tells, T E L L, mm-hmm. uh, and they're they're these large hills that uh, are formed by the town being. Uh, built of um, mud and wood, I think. And over time, you know, it degrades and they build again and they build again. And and for 1,500 years, for instance, at Caranovo, they built these towns, the, the town of Caranovo in the same place over and over again. So when I saw that tell in Bulgaria, it was like 50 feet high. <laughs> really, it was huge. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and apparently now they're digging there again, which is very interesting. There there are a lot of tells in in the Bulgarian and Romanian area, and uh, lots of them. And they haven't been excavated. And when they have been a little bit excavated, they haven't been published. So we don't know much. But but I did pull out something. There's a place called Tell You Not Site. Tell You Not Site. And they're, uh, they're digging there now, and they have been since 2013. And the location is Pizardzik. And there's this figurine in the old European material that I have a replica of at my house. I love her. She's called the Lady of Pizardzik. And she's a seated figure on a stool, an oracular stool or a throne. And she's covered in old European script. This oh wow! Yeah, she's gorgeous. She's in the Bucharest Museum. If anyone wants to see her, <laughs> I do. I'm going to look that up. <laughs> but the thing that I got excited about, you know, is uh, is that they're still learning and they're still going back into these sites. And so we'll, you know, they'll just be bringing up more and more. Uh, right. But the Caranovo culture, for example, they they used 
they somehow did powdered gold, you know, and they used it on the ceramics uh, for a long time. It was their sort of dominant form of, uh, of ceramic expression in the early fifth millennium. And they used it after the firing. So they painted with it in some way. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're just beautiful. You know, they're amazing. Um, and and so that's what I really wanted to get across somehow. The same goes for the weaving. They did fabulous weaving. Of course, pottery lasts and weaving doesn't. Right, so right. We know they did amazing weaving because of paintings on walls and because of the 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 pieces of the looms and the loom weights and all those things that, uh, that don't disintegrate. And so we have those from the different uh, houses and temples. Um, so Vicki, how, how would we, it sounds like what you're saying about this development of this old Europe culture is that they begin to develop different kinds of artistic movements, different sorts of um, social arrangements. So how would you define for the listener what you would call the main aspects of the old Europe civilization. I mean, obviously we have matriarchy at the center of it, but what distinguishes it and especially what's going to distinguish it from the people who are coming in soon in our timeline to uh, kind of clash with them? Uh-huh. Well, the fact uh, the what was new about them, I mean, I don't think they were making up new social uh, forms, I think they were living their matriarchal social organization in a way that they had always done. But now they're settled and there are thousands of people in some cases living in one uh, town, in one of these tells. And uh, so they're developing uh, further um, expressions of the consensus process, the conflict resolution process, the the harmonious, sustainable agricultural process, and so on, and the, and their artistic process is, like I say, is just off the charts. It's, it's incredible. They had more- so. Would that be what? Uh, just for an idea, is that something that distinguishes them from some of the other cultures at that time? Would it be the size, the number of people who were involved? Well, what are you Sorry? What, what cultures are you thinking of? When, since we're talking about old Europe, I want to make sure that the listener understands what we mean by it and where it is. So the in old Europe, we should not put it all under one rubric. Is it really under one rubric when we're talking about the people in, in Bulgaria and in the Ukraine, or is it separate? Is, when no, you say old Europe, is it same. one? It's all the same. In a okay, long, that's in what a I mean. generic way, we're looking at one kind of what Maria Gimbutas called the goddess civilization. What distinguishes them in particular in this case? Because there's matriarchies everywhere. We've been talking about how there's matriarchies spread out all of them. That's what, that's what I'm trying to drive. Okay, so what makes this distinct, and particularly for our conversations uh, and episodes going forward, is just the, is the size of them, and, and it sounds like also the artistic scope of some of them. Would yeah, that be fair? Yes, but at the same time, in the fifth millennium in China, uh, the agricultural people there are also making fantastic pots. Okay. And great. some of the motifs are so similar that uh, one husband and wife team uh, that studied the Kukuteni Tripolia culture and has really studied the pottery. Uh, which is, it is some of the most beautiful uh, pottery of all of old Europe. 
the the one in the Ukraine. Um, these this husband wife pair. I, uh, gosh, I wish I could remember. I think it's Lassiterus or something is the last name. But again, I don't have it at my fingertips. They uh, have done a wonderful uh, book, and you know they're experts in the field, and um, and they they make some comparisons with the Yangshou culture in China from the same period. Hmm. And if they actually might have had some sort of cultural contact, I don't know okay. if that's true, but it's very interesting. Uh, they show uh, female display figures on some of the pottery. They show uh, you know, certain motifs like the way snakes are drawn or the way uh, just they, they make comparisons that they feel are uh, so identical, so that there's actually some relationship, which I find fascinating, but is so against the rules of archaeology. You're not supposed to say anybody went anywhere. <laughs> well, that, I mean, that that could be really interesting for stuff we'll talk about in the future. So again, not to overlook any other cultures. I'm just trying to help people understand this particular one. So old Europe is a very large matriarchy that's developing. That's one of the things that makes it stand out. There's a large population, and there are some really interesting artistic developments that are occurring that's producing uh, a culture that has its own distinction. Would that be fair to say? That is fair to say, and it lasted for such a long time, and it uh, spread over such a large territory that there are actually different names that people might be familiar with or not, uh, starting with the Sesclo culture in Greece, and then uh, the first culture, the first pottery culture that they looked at around the Danube River uh, was called uh, Saracevo. And then after that, that sort of developed into, this is, there's lot, not like anybody is coming and uh, displacing them and replacing them or anything like that. It's much more of a development happening. So the Saracevo pottery first around the Danube, then the Vincha culture became extremely well articulated in the Balkans. And then the Karanovo tell and many uh, other tells around the site of Karanovo that are called Karanovo culture. And then the Qqteni uh, Tripolia. Now, some uh, scholars think that it should just be called all of it Qqteni. But uh, any where are these, Vicky? Just uh, for the listener, where in, where in the world? What would they be now? So Bulgaria, Romania, yeah, and then Hungary, and uh, and and then along up in Bulgaria, if you go north, uh, the Karanovo is north of the Danube, and then if you go further north and <laughs> turn right, you know you'll eventually get to the Ukraine. Um, and, and all of that was populated by these large groups of old European goddess-worshipping cultures. So what, what happened and, to them? And I think, Sorry, I, I think an interesting point to think about is how many more of these quote-unquote cultural sites are out there that have not been discovered or um, uh, dug in yet yeah, yeah, that you know yeah. that that yeah. the one at Karanovo is the one we know about, but 
but it doesn't mean that that was the only place that this matriarchal culture existed. It's just a place that we found it. We found evidence of it. And they know that these other tells exist. I mean, by by no means was it the only one. They're, they're right. everywhere. The whole, the whole territory, you know, this large territory uh, from all around the Black Sea on the uh, western side and north is... Uh, and all across Bulgaria and into Romania and uh, and into Serbia, Yugoslavia was the um, the real home of the Vidja culture. So it's it's all one thing, you know. It's developing, uh, and there's some probably some joining, and uh, you know who knows. But uh, but basically, no. You can think of it as one large expression. Of a, of a great mother culture that established itself and sustained itself beautifully and peacefully and artistically and ritually for thousands of years. Mm. And then... That in, sounds like heaven, doesn't it? Well, doesn't it? The golden... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really... It's a dream come true, if you ask me, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. They, they haven't asked me yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened to the dream? Where did it go? Well, it what happened, crushed us up. Crushed beneath the boots of patriarchy. We don't know enough about the uh, the Proto-Indo-Europeans and the Indo-Europeans. Uh, we don't know enough, I guess. They haven't quite figured out everything uh, enough archaeologically to make any great uh, assessment of how why they got so different and and why the the men went so berserk in those cultures the intrusion of these indo-european or proto-indo-european uh intruders into the the bulgarian area uh a site called varna that was a sea port uh south of the danube river um the the intruders were male uh, Maria Gimbutas describes that in her uh, archaeological material. She uses the archaeology to talk about the Kurgan culture, as she named them, um, and the first wave that came in around 4500. Uh, Vicki, can I ask you a question on this? There's something, this came up in a discussion. So we have intruders, we have these this, this group of male intruders coming in. Uh, we know that they're warlike. You are you've been saying that, you know, what made the men behave this way in this particular group. But what I'm wondering in this case is there's been warfare and warriors all over the world. Were the, what made these guys distinct? Were they the earliest? Were they dis, the different ones? Was there a different uh, sex ratio? They're, What's that? They're original. They are the earliest. They oh, are the people to uh-huh. organized war. Okay, so the these were the first people to organize war. Uh, even organized war the way people think of it now, with generals and grunts and all that. You know, it's not like that. They came on horseback. They uh, they came individually. It seems they didn't bring women, and they um, and they had. There's some intermixing at that point with women from the. Uh, from the goddess culture, but not a lot, and and the, and basically they displaced 
the and they did massacre some people uh, in the Varna area, and that's an area where there were priestesses and they had a lot of gold uh, they're buried with, and uh, and so there was a you know there definitely was a big disruption and it was cruel. Uh, but it was small, and it didn't leave a mark in the DNA record, if you understand how that works. Right. If we can hold at that point, because there, I just want to stay on this point, because it was a point of interest uh, recently. There had been other examples of warfare throughout the world, uh, I believe. Not that early. Prior, not that early, Not prior to this. So what time frame are we talking about? The fifth millennium. Right. So... Forty-five. Yeah, so four forty-five hundred. Um, let me uh, essentially. Will you and I will come back to and Don as well. We'll come back to this because this was something that came up. The argument that they had found earlier examples of warfare and skirmishes throughout the world prior to this, and I thought what was distinct, particularly about these invaders, is that it was almost a strategic kind of warfare. In other words, they were coming to destroy. And also to steal, really take steal, steal and take, and also steal wives, so to speak, or yeah. mates. Yeah. That seemed to be what was distinct about that. Yeah, that's true. Gosh, I wish I could put my hands on this one article. Oh, here it is. God, this is an article by David Anthony. He's a, a just an excellent scholar, and I, I read everything he writes. He writes a lot about the domestication of horses and that kind of thing. This, this is called uh, Mating Networks and Indo-European Origins. And he, he, he uses language that is so detached that I sometimes just really have to stop reading and catch my breath. Um, because it's not, you know, it's not how I feel when I read this stuff. I feel identified with the women, obviously. Right, right. Yeah. So he's talking about mating networks could be, but we're not always, very large in scale, much larger than local dialects or material culture groups. They could have been the product of a combination of different mating behaviors, rape, concubinage, informal relations, marriage, (laughs) with the qualification that they were engaged in often enough to contribute visibly to the genetic admixture of the linked populations. Because that's something that's coming out in the DNA record. Yeah. And I, 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 the reason, only reason I'm going at this in this detail is because I had been given in discussing this, um, some examples of, well, there's Australian rock art from 10,000 years ago. There's rock art. There's art or depictions or examples of it in Spain of from, of sorry? No, there's hunting. So the, so the depictions in question, it's questionable whether it's a hunting skirmish as opposed to, or you're making a distinction as to a kind of defined, structured, warlike aggression. Conquering. Uh, yeah. Conquering. Conquering. Okay. Conquering, yeah. yeah. And, uh, listen to what uh, Anthony says. He talks about uh, he talks about this as a practice found among many tribal societies: a sustained slave raiding and concubinage between some linked populations. I mean, that was not happening before the fifth millennium. So that's that's human trafficking, exactly. And then he said. Yeah. Uh, 
this is let me find my favorite ugh, my favorite uh, uh, quote unquote favorite yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he says he talks about a site called MyCop that I've always been very interested in. They had a lot of gold and very interesting up in the steps. If there was any MyCop gene flow into the Yamnaya, the Yamnaya are believed to be the ones who came into old Europe. I mean, we kind of know that now from the DNA. Right. That's the conquering population, right? Yes. yes. It could have been through a small number of MyCop females whose 30 to 40% Anatolian farmer ancestry was diluted in their descendants and whose skeletons have not yet been found or analyzed. But he's saying that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't in general the Mycop population. It was the, the women who were taken and uh, right. show up in the DNA of the Yamnaya eventually. <clears throat> and then the other thing he says about that, hang on. And while you're looking for that, I'm just going to make the comment that their skeletons have not been found, which indicates perhaps a very different burial tradition where women's remains were, yeah. not, quite, were not revered. Uh, could be. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's the other thing that I was struck by. He's talking about all the ornaments that... Uh, Let's see. Many ornaments of Balkan-derived copper reached the Volga, indicating some kind of exchange system or looting with Balkan partners. He always talks about partners. You know, they destroyed the Balkan culture. But anyway, uh, he says the largest copper assemblage from a 5th millennium BC site anywhere in the steppes. Uh, is what was found there. And most of it is argued to be Balkan in origin. Now this is in Yamnaya graves. Uh, so then he talks about the Balkan copper, the exotic ornamental shells, long flint blades, polished stone maces, and perhaps people and animals were exchanged, get the word exchange, across right. the Pontic Caspian steppes from Varna to Kavalsnik and uh, Svabondine between 4,500 and 4,200. So he sums it up in a sentence, you know, and then he talks about uh, later in the paper, he says, so it is still possible that steppe people interacted as raiders and traders. You know, it's that glamorizing, just like they glamorize the hunters in the hunter right. mentality. They glamorize the raiders and traders. What's his name again, Vicky? Can we have his name so that people can look it up and listen yeah. to it? And and I, don't, I don't mean to put him down. You know, he's a wonderful scholar. He's just. Oh, no, no, I'm sure. I'm just saying just so people can look at it and yeah. see what you're saying and yeah. decide for themselves. David Anthony, David W. Anthony. Great, thank he's, you. He's very credible, and uh, I respect him. But I hate that detached male language. Uh, right. They, the intellectuals do that. You know, they do it with a place called Ur in uh, in Mesopotamia in, when the right. first cities arose, which was really the rise of the state. And in the in that place, Ur, there was this death pit. They call it. They found you know eighty people that were killed buried at the same time and a lot of them were royal women brought from other places and uh and 
and they talk about it. It was uh, James Woolley. It was a long time ago when he excavated. It's that old Victorian mentality. And he, he talked about the women, you know, going happily to their deaths. You know, no. you know it's just, oh, oh God, I hate this. <laughs> and so that's what we're up against. You know? it's like well, there, there is a strange, really almost adoration i hear especially when i hear people talking about the genetics and you hear the genetic patterns that come across where you have very clear example of these warrior tribes sweeping across the steps crushing all the men in a particular in these matriarchal cultures and then taking the women and you see that dna just like you talked about earlier and they sort of glorify that sex imbalance ratio as they call it so it's really just fascinating they they make it sound as if it's these powerful conquering men and dawn and i we've we've joked about yeah, the different yeah. things i've heard where they say well maybe it's just that these guys were just so attractive yeah that you know yeah, they were so manly <laughs> that these peaceful matriarchal women decided oh boy <laughs> yeah exactly give me a man on a horse Hoo-ah. <laughs> but actually as you're saying Sean, now that we have the dna evidence since about 2015 i think they know that in around 3000 BCE, at the end, toward the end of that whole period, uh, the uh, the DNA shows very clearly that the male farmer DNA was entirely erased from the from the DNA record. From Incredible, the yeah. yeah. And think I, of the the trauma exactly. Right. exactly of that moment, you know, of of the entire culture just being you know, half of it massacred and the other half enslaved and brutalized. Yeah. Well, well, Bosnia, you know, I mean, really, this is the beginning of the way war is waged, where women are uh, a tool. The rape of women is a strategy, is a tactic in, in the conquest of a people. Right. I think that's key for people to understand. I think it's not, it's not that you're saying that, people haven't been violent at different points in time in history, but that there was something singular and significant about the way this played out. You have this beautiful, long-lasting matriarchal culture and then suddenly a rupture uh-huh. and a literal shift such that the world we live in now, I mean, when it's this is the most fascinating part. The world we live in now is the heir to what these conquerors created. Yeah. And they created, and and in such a way, they erase not just the male DNA, but the female cultural lineage. Yes. That we don't even believe these things could have existed before. Yes, and the interesting work that many women researchers, there have been some uh, really great uh, researchers who have looked into textiles and the whole tradition, uh, the long, long, unbroken tradition of textiles from old Europe all the way to the present day in, especially I think in Russia and the, uh, the, um, uh, what we used to call East Europe, Eastern Europe, you know, the ball and so on. It, it, uh, there are motifs that haven't changed at all or have been, uh, somewhat stylized maybe same way the Chinese language, you know, the written language uh, started with pictographs and then was modified to the point where we see it today. But it's actually all the same letters. It's the same written language for 5,000 years, which is quite intriguing. You can follow it back. And the textiles in Europe 
you can do the same thing with uh, Mary E. Mary B. Kelly was the greatest uh, of the textile women. She she knew Maria Gimbutas's work very well, and she tracked it as she was doing her work following the textiles. And, you know, I think I said before that there were, if you pick up a tea towel in Hungary, you know, that's embroidered, it probably has some motifs on it that go all the way back 9,000 years. Wow. And they, you know, what we saw on the pottery is then translated into the embroideries and so on. And probably would have been on the textiles as well at the time. It's yes. just that, the, yeah. yeah, they don't survive. So. Absolutely. And so it's, yeah. uh, we think of it as, you know, obviously women's culture, but also as a kind of code. It's the, the women's culture went underground. We, we sometimes uh, talk about it as a substratum and mm-hmm. follow it all the way down. And it's not just textiles, but it's an excellent way to see the motifs but also in the uh, folk art and the folk dances and the rituals that are still celebrated, you know, by the young people in uh, the, the calendar rituals that are still celebrated in many parts, rural parts of Europe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of that is, uh, is pretty unbroken from that long, long time ago. So they, they were ruined. Those cultures were ruined and the art was not produced anymore in the sense of the pottery and so on. But uh, the people dispersed. Uh, and, and of course, the women were taken in this case. We're talking about women being taken back into the Yamnaya tribe. So they mm-hmm. then uh, migrated all the way across Asia. So, um, you know, there's so they find the Anatolian farmer DNA in populations uh, that have gone east. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't we stop at that point? Because there is um, a lot that we can unpack about these movements and the genetics. And also I think, especially for when we start to talk about and return to the story of the Amazons and the idea of the Amazons as a matriarchal resistance movement, this would be a good place to build upon it. So this has been amazing. Oh my goodness. So amazing. We'll certainly put this in different parts for people to digest, but I think especially all of this stuff is a great primer so that now we can move forward and tell some more fascinating stories about these particular matriarchs. Thank you so much. Yes, thank, thank you, you so Vicky. much, Vicky amazing. Noble. That was amazing. That was fun. Thank you, you guys. I love conversations. And thank you, Dawn, as always. And, and thank, thank you, all you for Sean. Listening. Absolutely. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Yes. Take care.